Today's episode, a conversation with horror author and musician, Josh Mallerman. Hello, I'm Chris Alvarez, and perhaps you can't tell by looking at me, but I am a nerd. I've been a nerd for many years, and I'm good at it. In this show, I'd like to give you tips on how to be the most successful and well-informed nerd that you can possibly be. I speak with interesting people about cool things. Please join us if you're so inclined. This is Full Contact Nerd Interviews, and welcome. I'm speaking with Josh Mallerman, author of Goblin, a novel in six novellas, to be published May 18th, 2021 by Del Rey, and also author of uh, Bird Box, among many other works. Thank you for speaking with me. Yeah, hello. Glad to be here. So first... um, so I saw that I think Goblin is an older work. One of your um, you, I, you wrote a bunch before you published Bird Box. I think is Goblin one of your earlier works that's being published now. Well, so there was a limited edition of Goblin came out in um, a few years ago, and my fiance did this awesome cover art for it and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now it's getting a wide release through Del Rey. So prior it was like a it was limited to like a thousand copies, and mm-hmm. now Del Rey picked it up for a wide release with a new cover and all sorts of, I mean, that that's really the only difference. And I'm really thrilled out of my mind that like, you know, more horror authors will be able to get this rather than the singular expensive limited edition one. Okay. Um, so, so I guess in general, I'd like to talk about your horror writing. Um, what, what prompted, what motivates you? You know, most of your writing seems to be horror, but it also blends into other genres. So can you talk about um, how you figure out what you want to write about? Well, you know, it's funny, you don't really start to see, um, or you don't set out with a pattern in mind, right? And then when you start to write a number of books, you start to see a pattern, things begin to emerge. And one of those is a certain, I guess, elasticity to whether or not these books I'm writing are horror or not. I I consider Bird Box squarely horror, but a a lot of people don't. They say it's a thriller or this or that. And the ones that have followed... Goblin is, I would argue, is squarely horror, but many that have followed, you know, is this a war story? Is this Western? Whatever. But to me, the sort of the impetus behind that, if I trace my own horror history back a little, the very first movie I ever saw, this first scary movie I ever saw, was Twilight Zone, the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, This is in the mid 80s. And what an introduction, because in one movie, you kind of got the spectrum of the genre at once. You got the social commentary in the first one. You got the sort of warmer heartstring Spielberg um, offering. Then you had the anything goes imagination of Anthony in the house. You know, imagine his sister's mouth gone, that one. And then you have the creature feature on the airplane. So you had my very first experience with horror was sort of elastic and genre combining and this kind of thing. So to me, and, and through the years, I've become an enormous fan of the show itself, The Twilight Zone. And so I've always kind of seen each of these installments as an episode of a show, if you can imagine me perhaps as the host, because I'm the guy writing them. So, mm-hmm. so I know that for me, horror is home, but I also understand when reviewers and, and whatnot say, like, is this horror or what? You know, there's something a little more elastic going on. Mm-hmm. So tell me then about the um, sort of the setting and the characters of Goblin. So Goblin is six novellas. Um, each pretty much highlights one Gobliner. Goblin is the city, the town that it takes place in. Mm-hmm. And for me early on, 
once I um, had an understanding of the city itself, literally the, the streets and the landmarks and the name of the city itself, mm-hmm. at that moment, I understood that Goblin was my main character, that, that no matter who else I put in this book, the, the city is, is, is running the show here. Mm-hmm. And it was a very liberating um, realization because once you know it's the city, well, then anything can happen inside the city, anything at all. And you still have your main character present, right? Mm-hmm. And so Goblin, what I, you know, what I would hope would happen for like a, a reader, a horror fan is that you close this book and, and, and whether or not you're a little, you know, eerie out or edged out, you're kind of like, man, I, w- I want to visit that place. Okay. So um, is Goblin, how much of it is taken from real places you've been to and how much from sort of imagination? Yeah, you know, no one, no one has asked me that yet, and that's interesting because there are scenes like there's a summer camp scene, and and I've just described the camp I went to uh, to a T. Um, there, there, I grew up in more like suburban uh, outside of Detroit. I'm I'm actually in that area right now where I'm talking to you from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do get a sense that Goblin's a bit more mid-sized city, not not, not uh, maybe more small city, more like Grand Rapids, Michigan. Mm-hmm. versus where I grew up, which is suburbia, right? But there is to me an element in the opening story when Richard and Charles are walking around and showing each other the landmarks. It did, it does hearken more to how I grew up than say uh, Brooklyn, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's not wildly populated, but then again, it's also not, you know, in the middle of Nebraska. So, so I would say that more is in there than I even pretty much realized in mm-hmm. terms of, yeah, taking it from real life. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like it's a big enough place that you can have people living there who don't know each other. You know, you have that small town feel yeah. uh, versus the big town or big city. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'm glad you said that because I'll, I'll phrase it that way or frame it that way. Yeah, it's big enough where people may not know each other or definitely don't know each other, but small enough where, you know, it's, you know, you have to be fairly near to see the skyline or to see the definition of the city coming in from the highway, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, um, so as you were writing these novellas, well, are they, did you sort of write them one after the other or were they sort of written at different phases of your life? So the first five were written in a row and, and the wraparound, the delivery driver, that was all written at once. Um, and I had a list of about 10 scenarios, 10 gobliners to write about. Mm-hmm. And I made it to about halfway through. And, and I hadn't really planned on each story being, you know, about 100 pages, which is what the rough draft was more like. So I had reached around page 500 and I'm like, whew, man, like, you know, I don't know if we need five more gobliners. I think you've you got <laughs> enough here, you know. But then about a year after that, um, I had just finished another novel and I was like, you know what, I, I'm going to do one more from the list. And I added, it's a story called um, A Mix-Up at the Zoo. And so Dirk Rogers' story in Goblin was added a year after. And this was interesting for me because there are dream sequences in Dirk's story that are entirely italicized and there's no quotation marks. So you don't know really if someone's saying something or Dirk's thinking it. You know, it's all sort of nightmarish. And when I wrapped that one and then thus wrapped Goblin, I said to myself, I would like to try an entire novel like this, like fully in italics. I'm not sure who's talking or thinking. Present tense, all that stuff. And that was Bird Box. So mm-hmm. a- after I wrote um, A Mix-Up at the Zoo, it, it almost like shoveled me straight into Bird Box. And I was like, okay, now I'm going to try a whole book like that. 
And so that to me was a sort of, I guess you can argue experimental period. Again, present tense, all literally the entire novel, um, Rough Draft of Bird Box was originally italicized. No quotation marks, you know, uh, you didn't know, maybe And uh, uh, Mallory had like 14 housemates instead of seven. So you didn't really get to know. It was almost like having a nightmare and this person saying this and this person's that, or maybe Mallory's thinking it. It was more, a bit more experimental than what came out. And I think that Goblin, I know that Goblin helped inspire that, that first run of Verbox. Mm-hmm. So the name Goblin, you know, uh, people into fantasy are like, oh, Goblin, that's a, a strange name for a city, but do you explain in the book where that name comes from? No. Well, no. There's a lot of history of the town in the book. There's um, uh, one of the characters who I think is sort of the, the ultimate gobliner. Mm-hmm. Uh, Walter Camp is his name. And he he's absolutely horrified of the, um, you know, of the eeriness, the dread. And there's a lot of that in that town. And But meanwhile, he's also absolutely obsessed with the history of the town. So there's a scene in the book where Walter... He can't get to sleep, man. He's so freaked out of ghosts and all this like stuff. So he goes to his neighbor's, this is like 4 a.m. or something. He goes to his neighbor's apartment, you know, uh, Mrs. Doris, who's like 30 years older than him, but wide awake drinking wine. And he just, and she knows Walter well enough to say, come on in. Why don't you, uh, why don't you talk to me about goblin history? Because she knows it calms him down. And he then rattles off like a long history of the, of the, of the city and everything. And, that's one of my, I mean, not to sound like this, but it is one of my favorite moments in the book because it's because Walter exemplifies like the gobliners, not love, hate, but obsession slash fear of their hometown. And also, I don't think Walter Camp has any had any desire to leave at all. But meanwhile, it was not necessarily a good place for him. Mm-hmm. So a bit, there's a bit of Stockholm syndrome for gobliners. <laughs> I'm speaking with Josh Mallerman, author of Goblin. You can find more information about his work at joshmellerman.com. If you like this episode of Full Contact Nerd Interviews so far, please tap the like button and hit the subscribe button. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. I, I get sort of, uh, is it fair to say it has a Lovecraftian feel to it? I mean, in terms of like a, a cosmic dread undertone, yes. But in terms of, you know, a giant creature, multi, multi-species creature, no. <laughs> yeah, but but yeah, I was getting that sense of like, yes, yeah, so, some weird dread you can't quite you know, figure out what's causing it. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, I, absolutely. Oh, I was just going to say, I noticed in the, in the description also said it rains all the time and it's always, it's always sort of dark or not quite dark. Yeah. I, I think that it's sort of, um, 
the constant rain is almost um, a literal representation of the sky is always falling, you know, on all these characters. And not that they're pessimistic, but they're all like peaked, you know. There's another character that's maybe the flip side of Walter named Neil Nash. And Neil is just a, lives a giant life. He's loaded. He's a big game hunter. And there's, there's one, you know, there's, there's a couple of rules in Goblin, but one of them is that the great owls are untouchable. You can't, you can't hurt a great owl, can't go near one. And most of them live inside the North Woods. So the North Woods are off limits. Mm-hmm. And it's understood. It's respected. Someone like Walter Camp would never go near there. He ne- never, never in a million years. Mm-hmm. Neil Nash uh, on whiskey and scotch and meat and, you know, with guns loaded is like, I'm going to break the the one rule in Goblin tonight, you know? So they're, but they're, the two of them. So Camp lives entirely in fear and um, Neil Nash is the opposite, but they're, they're both reacting to Goblin. And so to me, they're, they're, they're on this, they're both two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. Was, is there any part of the, the novel that required research of any kind, or is it just straight yeah. out of your head? I, yeah, just straight out of my head. I, you know, there was stuff where I, I started to have to keep track of like a city map, that kind of stuff, you know? Okay. Um, I had to like keep tabs of, because you start, <laughs> you know, at first you, you're like, they're driving down a road, you just name a road. Right. But, but when, when you're like, okay, wait a minute, hold on now. Now if, if they're going to be in the same story and then I actually need to know the layout of this city, you know? Mm-hmm. So then you start laying everything out. But, but in terms of, I got to think about that more, but no, I don't, I don't remember any like actual concrete research on anything else. Mm-hmm. So what, uh, can you tell me a little bit about the main character, the, the protagonists of each of these novellas, like what sort of person they are? Sure. It, it, it really, what, and I can do this in a fairly brief way too, is that each, um, each novella really highlights not just a gobliner, but a gobliner's obsession. And that's sort of what marks a gobliner. They're obsessed with something and they'll do something uh, untoward or wrong in the name of that obsession. So in the first story, we get a guy named Charles who, who um, falls in love with a, a woman from uh, Minneapolis. And then she, she insists, you know, that uh, it's, so it's a long distance relationship. She insists that like they have legendary love and, 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 and one way to um, prove that is to do what Van Gogh did, cut your ear off for me, you know, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. And so then Charles is like, I'll do it, I'll do it. But he, he doesn't want to cut his own ear off. So he, he goes to the morgue and he finds one there. And then he sends that and she, and then the lady's like, you know, um, well, but now we did just what Van Gogh did. We need to do more than Van Gogh. Can you send a finger as well? Yeah, I'll send a finger, but not, not my own, you know? So that's Charles, uh, Walter Camp in the second story. He, um, he is horrified of being scared to death. Mm-hmm. So he essentially ghost proofs his apartment so that nothing can jump out at him. He sleeps on a, on a giant plexiglass bed. So nothing can be hiding under the bed, you know, just paranoid out of his mind of the supernatural. In the third story, that's Neil Nash and his obsession with bagging one of the great owls, even though that's literally the rule. And in the fourth is a visitor to Goblin. Um, the, the, his name's Roman Emperor. He's a magician whose magic might be real. And there's a, a, a youngster in Goblin who's obsessed with the magic scene and collects magic magazine and stuff like that. And he knows Emperor's coming to town. And, and so he's doing all he can to go see Roman's show. But we know as a reader, like, yeah, I don't think you should go to that show, kid. Um, and, then, and then there's the, the tour guide of the, um, the overworked tour guide 
um, Dirk Rogers, who uh, works at both the zoo and the slaughterhouse. So you can imagine mm. a conflict of interest there. <laughs> and, uh, and it's called a mix-up at the zoo. So there's no real hiding what happens in that story. And then the last one is Wayne Sherman, who, um, while grieving for his wife, built Goblin's biggest tourist attraction, which is like football fields, like five, six football fields of hedge maze, but like sort of an unruly hedge maze. And no one's ever been able to solve the hedges until this night. Wow. And that's, that's, yeah. So these are, these are our six obsessed, rather colorful gobliners that we focus on that night. But, you know, it's interesting because you say to yourself, yeah, that's only six of them. There's thousands of citizens. Like what are six other people doing? And maybe, maybe I'll, maybe I I find myself wanting to write about them too, whoever they are. Mm -hmm. So do you always throw it? So I sense a a bit of dark whimsy in, in each of the stories, like maybe dark comedy isn't quite maybe going too far, but do you always have that sort of, flavor in all your writings or do you just have like dark evil painful stuff well great question right as a horror fan right like where where does this fall on that spectrum or something to me bird box is cold bird box is a cold straight shot so is black mad wheel so is inspection is cold but unburied carol a house at the bottom of the lake um even maybe Mallory, which is a sequel to Bird Box, Goblin, um, On This the Day of the Pig. These, I think they do have more of what you're saying. And But this is interesting because there is a line that I'm afraid of reaching or, or touching, which is sort of that Tim Burton line, where I don't know if Tim Burton could actually scare me. I love him, love his movies. But he's definitely more on the fanciful whimsical side of the horror line if he does sound scary than he is even sleepy hollow than he is on the actual we're here to actually be afraid line and i think that when you get to his when you get to that spot you almost have to just commit to it right like this is far out this is funny this is colorful but i think with goblin i'm goblin and carol and these i'm actually attempting to to still scare the reader Mm-hmm. So there's still like a sense like, no, this is a horror novel, but yes, it may be colorful. Or as you say, there is whimsy for sure in it and in whimsical scenarios and extreme. But if you can suspend your disbelief almost in a fantasy way, like a fantasy novel, if you can spend your disbelief in Goblin and accept all this, then I think this will scare you as well. Mm-hmm. So tell me about some of the things. So I, you've been a, a musician. Are, are you still um, performing as a musician? Well, 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 not for, as you know, not for the last year and change because of COVID, but yeah, up to there. Yeah. Me and my best friends, we've been um, best friends since we were like 11 years old mm-hmm. and the bass player, uh, Chad and the drummer, Derek started playing when we were like that age, mm-hmm. but the other songwriter, uh, Mark and I didn't really start playing until like 19 or 20. Mm-hmm. And so by the time we started writing songs, these two were like the best rhythm section imaginable, you know? Mm-hmm. We've been together pretty much, I mean, since then, pretty much. We lived in New York City for four years. Um, That's where we really became a band and recorded a bunch of songs. We went on the road for six and a half, seven years, like no homes, touring like 250 shows a year. But don't, I don't want you to imagine like Def Leppard playing and like we were playing to 20 people a night and it was like absolutely 
extraordinary, this experience. I mean, you're with your best friends, you're Mm -hmm. playing songs, you're getting paid in booze half the time. I mean, it was like just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. But somewhere along that journey, I would start to see, man, I've got six hours between cities, or let's say an average of four and a half hours a day driving, right? Mm -hmm. You could read, you could, which is good. You could sleep, which is fine. You could work on music. You could also write. And so it started to become the hours that I would actually write these ideas out. And I think I wrote something like seven, eight, nine rough drafts, you know, between cities, like uh, touring America with the band. Mm -hmm. Um, We are still together now. We are literally doing, um, uh, what's the right word? We're mixing a new album that is coming out in October. And we had one that came out in 2019. So, yeah, I mean, when you're in a band with your best friends, there's a sense of like, why would you break up? Like literally, like, unless I guess you're all out of falling out. Like, because it's like, what are we going to do? Say a break? We're all still best friends. What are we breaking up for? Like, I don't even know. Well, why would we even do this? Right. Mm-hmm. So, and it, but there are, you know, peak activity, activity and, and, and lull activity, I'm sure in your life or anyone's life. Mm-hmm. But right now it seems to be a peak moment for us mixing and working on a new one and stuff like that. Good, good. Um, so how does being being a songwriter and a musician, how does that work its way into your writing? And, and, you know, and I, you know, obviously sound has been an aspect of some of your work or the concept of sound or absolutely. um, Talk to me about that, please. Yeah. Well, sure. Um, you know, it's funny. I didn't think of that at the time of bird box, right. That the book really is almost in, in, in what's the right phrase like um like oh, entirely a soundtrack like you can't see anything almost so like when we would go around touring uh book t- for the book tour mm-hmm. my fiance alice and i we literally drove around the midwest with a suitcase full of blindfolds this mm-hmm. is in 2014 we blindfold the audience i was playing like scary music and i would narrate while allison like played mallory and performed and stuff mm-hmm. and so i never even really caught that there's a performative element as you said there's sound elements uh, Black Man Wheel was more obvious because it's a band, but then also it, I, I don't really feel like that band is my band, you know? So I almost feel like Bird Box is more directly linked to the band than, than the book about a band is. Mm-hmm. But the biggest thing that the biggest um, link that I can see between the two mediums for me is that I almost, when it comes to writing novels and stories, I almost care more about the rhythm and the spirit um and like the take then i do the actual specific like vocabulary like the writing itself and that might sound like like what what do you mean Hmm. but in the same way that i care more about those elements on an album i want it to be i want it to leap from the speaker that's more important to me than if the guitar player is perfect or or if the guitar sound is like perfect or the singer's voice has so much range it's and i'm not quite saying i'm a punk i'm not quite going that far Hmm. But someone like the Kinks, maybe, who were punk, I guess, in their day, mm-hmm. so someone like the Kinks that, who, or the Doors, the Doors are a great example of that, who it seems more important to them that they put on a theatrical experience than Jim Morrison seeing everything exactly right, right? Mm-hmm. And that, for me, is the same with, like, writing a novel. So, to me, that's the biggest thing I've taken from music into writing is that rhythm, that take, that live performance that spiritual side. Mm-hmm. So um, what other things inspire your writing, you know, within either genre or, well, music, 
videos or sorry, music shows, films, books. Any of yeah. That. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, I had a long period where, so like I was sort of like grew up with horror, right? Meaning I, in my, in my bedroom and Clive Barker and Stephen King and Dean Koontz and reading this stuff growing up and loving it, all of it. Mm-hmm. But I really had a real run um, in New York actually of starting to really get into like the classics. The, yeah. Like Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Virginia Woolf, Marcel Proust, um, you know, Nabokov, like this kind of run. And I was just, I mean, at book after book, just like, you know, floored by what I was reading, whether it was the actual story, but or the writing itself or like the, the spirit within it, whatever it was. But that, that run through the classics led me to Dracula because Dracula's on the same shelf as Hemingway. You know, it's a, it's classic literature. Right. Mm -hmm. And what that book did for me, it was astonishing for me because number one, it reminded me of the genre, but meaning, (laughs) meaning it literally reminded me, Hey, horror you haven't you haven't looked at horror in a few years you know that kind of thing you haven't read horror in a few years and secondly it showed me like you could write a like a a classic in the genre like a legit literary classic in the genre and and when i read that and we're talking like the year 2000 2002 or something so i think that that kind of statement might sound kind of goofy now like of course you could you could write it anywhere but genre was a little different back then genre was a little different in 2000 2001 it wasn't i think it's taken much more seriously now than it was then Mm -hmm. and and so for me dracula was a big like a big lesson and it was like and from there i've been kind of on a a fairly strict horror diet since then (laughs) oh okay okay what do you ever do any um i know video games there's a lot of horror video games do you ever play video games no but i want to and i was just talking to someone about this recently because Okay, I did what, like some silly uh, virtual reality test thing. It was like a deep sea dive. Okay. And while you're deep, like there's sharks in the distance. And it struck me like, this is scarier than any movie I've ever seen. And I was like, if this, and I'm sure this exists and you know about it. I was like, if this was like a horror game that I was in right now, like, I don't know if I could stand, I don't know if I can make it through this. Because <laughs> like even walking through like the haunted house around Halloween time, you know, even that's like a little much for me where Allison has to kind of like, we can do it, you know? Oh. And I was like, dude, video games, that those have to be scarier than movies. Are you a horror video game fan? I, I, I check out the art. I like looking at the art and the, the scenarios. I don't play, but I just, you know, I, if that makes sense. I yeah, like seeing playing throughs, yeah. playthroughs. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, it almost feels like that's, like, if the, if, the, if the horror fan is actually, if it's the rush you're looking for, if it's the, the fear, the scare, which a lot of times I am too, mm-hmm. I don't know how you can top like a well-done game. So so it is something I want to get into. I, I First of all, I don't know where to begin. I don't even know any like playing systems or, or anything, whatever game system, whatever you call them. Mm-hmm. I don't know the names of which games. I'm sure it would not be that hard to go online and look into this. But it is something I'm interested in because mm-hmm. it's like, I feel like that could influence the books in a more immediate um like method uh, methodology sort of way like the way it's done mm-hmm. like 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 literally you're walking down a hall and then you know whatever it might be you're you're focused on this door and the door on the side opens instead whatever the scenario might be yeah. you i think that that could be uh, i could learn a lot from that mm-hmm. so it is something i want to check out yeah yeah it's um so since you're sensitive to horror uh, aspects of horror how, how do you 
how do you go about writing hard? Do you write what scares you or do you stop at some points and, and back away from what you're writing or? I've had, I've had a few times where that's happened where it's been like, Ooh, God, you know, like, yeah, there's been a few, one time I had a couple, um, it was, it's sort of like, it's a, it's a book sort of where it's a, if you can imagine an exorcism off camera, like, so, so the kids are playing in the basement, but the exorcism's happening upstairs. So they're hearing it. Mm-hmm. And at one point to sort of avoid what they're hearing, they have a staring contest. And as they're doing this staring at they're like, Oh, you know, be, you know, just, you know, Tommy, be aware that, you know, sometimes when you stare for a long time, the other person's face could start to look a little different, you know? <laughs> and this scene started to get to a point where it was like, I hold on. This is this is messed up, man. You know, and it started really messing with me. I've had a few moments like that, but for the most part, it's I kind of see it like um if you have a sense of humor, um, <laughs> you know what I mean, then you're funny or something. And I have a sense of horror. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, and I like how you said sensitive to horror. I I hadn't ever heard that put that way before where it actually works on you. So like a friend who says like, Oh, I'm, I get too scared. I'm like too scared that you're the perfect person for the audience. That's like saying, I laugh too much. I'm not going to watch this movie, you know, yeah. like, come on, you're like perfect, you know, but, it, but there are moments where I'm, uh, I'll just kind of like yell Allison's name. I'll be like, Hey baby. And then she'll be like, what? I'm like, Oh, nothing. You know, <laughs> just kind of like uh, checking in with reality again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know some people won't, uh, watch or read horror because they have nightmares and they can't sleep or it, it, that never affects you. I've, there are more than a few movies that have made it that um I was like, have to have the light on. Um, if I get up to have to use the bathroom. Well, now though we have a bathroom off the master bedroom. So it's a lot easier. Uh-huh. Um, but when there were times where I was like, Oh God, I got to like walk down the hall right now. Like, <laughs> And I've woken uh, Allison up before. I've been like, hey, listen, I got I to gotta use the bathroom. And she's like, so what? Go to, you know, like, I just, just be awake while I do it or, or, or come stand by the door. It would even be better. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm speaking with Josh Mallerman, author of Goblin. You can find more information about his work at joshmallerman.com. If you like this episode of Full Contact Nerd Interviews so far, please tap the like button and hit the subscribe button. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. So, so what, what are a couple movies that have really, like, rattled you the most okay okay good question um one of which, one of them have you ever seen the exorcism of emily rose i think i've heard of it but no i haven't seen it there is a scene in that movie where it's i think it's in a college um dude's dorm room mm-hmm. and him and her had like made out or so maybe it's they must be boyfriend girlfriend i think and then he like wakes up and he's like where are you and he like looks sort of the end of the bed and she's all like contorted like on the like in the yeah. far sort of corner of the room and it's like oh. Oh boy, but it's contorted in such like a good way. It's like so unnerving. 
it's not it's not like um you know that fast action or like you know da, 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 da thing mm-hmm. it's just wrong looking and you're like ooh, that like just haunts me that one and then another one that really did a number on me man two of them but and they're both found footage which is weird um i listened to the blair witch project in headphones like i watched it and listened in headphones oh okay that, that famous scene where they where they're like um in the tent and then they're like like the tent shakes and then they go running in the darkness like screaming what is that what is that and all that mm-hmm. there is stuff that you hear in there that you wouldn't have heard in the um uh like theater even and what what does this like so you'll hear like like watch it again and you'll see what i mean mm-hmm. you'll hear like kids laughing like in the distance like giggling like whatever that means mm-hmm. but in the middle of all that giggling you hear sort of this like low voice like woman like like that and you're like oh boy like they kind of snuck in like the blair which is like voice in, in in like a month amongst the giggling that messed me up i was in the office with headphones and i was like okay hold on hold on hold on i had hit pause i took the headphones off i'm just like so peaked and another one that really messed me up was um paranormal activity which i saw with a bunch of friends mm-hmm. we walked out of there i was like breathless afraid and like to a man they were all like that movie sucked and i was like wait what and they were all like, that was dumb. I'm like, what do you mean dumb? Like, I can't even move right now. I'm so scared. And like, when I, when I got home, there's just something about that one that worked for me. And this is interesting, right? Because the latter two examples, you don't see the monster. You don't see the monster in the Blair Witch Project. And you don't see the monster in um, uh, Paranormal Activity. And you also don't in Bird Box. And so I wonder how influenced I was and am by like those two are like peak scary moments for me and i because i'll remember i remember while writing bird box you start to say to yourself like hey are you gonna you know you're a third through the book are you gonna bring the creatures in or something you know and you're like ah oh, no, no no not yet not yet do you even know what they look oh not yet not yet halfway through nah once we're past halfway it's you're like are we gonna ever bring this in <laughs> <laughs> and and so i i do wonder if those movies influence that I wonder if your subconscious was was sort of saying what would be the scariest thing to do here, and it was tapping into maybe those feelings you had before. I don't yeah, know. no, exactly right. It's like that you can't really. Some people will say, and, and maybe they're right, rightfully so, that it's the nothing beats the reader's imagination, right, or even the viewers, right. Nothing beats your imagination. Nothing that could come on the screen will be scarier than your imagination. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I think it has more to do with what you just said, the feeling of it. Mm-hmm. The sense of it, like the the sense of it coming or the sense of it could be right now mm-hmm. and, and whether or not it is, it's like it could be right now when you see it, you know, when the camera's going through the house at the end of the Blair Witch Project, it's like going up these stairs. and So anywhere it goes, you, you, that could be the moment you see her mm-hmm. and you don't, but that moment is like sustained that like, oh, it could be right now, you know, the whole time, that whole scene. Yeah, your, your heart keeps beating and waiting, and it's like <laughs> yeah. this is getting worse and worse, or better and better. How you want to look at it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so thinking about actually, I'll ask this first. Um, if if Goblin had a soundtrack, what would that soundtrack be? What would be the the musical aesthetic of it? Hey, this is like the best question in the world. What would Goblin's soundtrack be? So I'm thinking about a couple of my favorites, right? Um, Under the Skin is one of the best soundtracks ever, but it's very like alien sounding, like um, uh, synthesizer, like alien, like keyboard alien, like noises. And it's a movie about an alien, essentially. So 
while that's one of my favorite soundtracks, that's not right. I don't think for Goblin, but then another one, like my all time favorite is creep show. That's my favorite soundtrack of all time. Mm-hmm. And I even, I have the original um, on vinyl. In fact, I kind of want to show you this real sure. fast that, that if you look past this t-shirt right there, you see all those albums. Oh yeah. They're all horror vinyl, all of them. Oh, wow. Like I'm really in, into this. And that's why this question is amazing. I think it would be something more like Creepshow, more like colorful, but scary. But Creepshow is borderline comic book cartoon. Again, that Tim Burton line, you know? And so I think something along those lines, but with more like, with more legit undertones, like gravity to it. I think that there would be one thing I would love to determine if I was in charge of what you're saying is what music would make the constant rainfall. What, what music would represent the constant rainfall, whether that's, pattering of like distant drums or if it's some sprinkling on the high notes on a piano whatever it might be what can we have that almost becomes like a theme throughout but this is a question i'm going to think about a lot more especially since each segment could have its own its own like more distinct moment you know neil nash's would be like you know and walter camps would be more like subtle one note on an organ low note play the whole time Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask if each if each of the six might have its own variation. Yeah, yeah. That. Um so so um so I'll ask you a, a few questions about Bird Box. Um so when I guess normally when when it's bought and and made into a a show or a film, the writer basically is done at that point. The, you know, the the producers take care of it. Were you involved at all in the production? No. We so Bird Box was optioned before the book came out and it was my first book. So talk about no leverage, like literally no name whatsoever. Um, And we happily handed it over. And I think that this is um, another thing I've taken from the band, which is, or being in a band, Mm -hmm. which is I'm very used to writing the song, bring it to the boys. I don't tell them what to do. They play it however they want. And I think that the same thing here with Bird Box. I wrote the song bring it to the music, the the movie people, and they play it however they want. Mm-hmm. And it, it was very easy for me to be like, oh, let's just see what they do. You know, and people would say, you know, um, are you, you know, are you unhappy with how it turned out? Like, unhappy. I mean, I, I can't even tell you how glad, how glad I am this happened at all, man. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, are there some like, yeah, I think they're a little too loose. Um, rules are a little too loose with the blindfolds. Okay, big deal. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we didn't have any say in anything, but at the same time, they were extremely welcoming to us. We, we went, we flew out to LA to meet the producers. Mm-hmm. We went on set. I met Sandra Bullock on set and everything. Mm-hmm. We went to the premiere in LA, the premiere in New York. Um, I spoke with the prospective screenwriters on the phone before they were hired. So it was a warm, welcome experience, but also no, we not literally we could have made the biggest stink in the world about something and it, and it wouldn't matter. Our, our say didn't matter, which again, I was fine with. Yeah. But, but did anyone, I'm just curious um, when they meet you, did they want, did people want, you know, like, Oh, what's the motivation of this character? What? Yeah. The, so yeah. The, when I met with the producers, they had questions like that. And that, that was a freaky experience, man, because I'd never been on any lot in Hollywood before. And I had to get a pass to go on the universal lot. Um, originally universal option for a box and it's the same producers at universal and Netflix with the project. But mm-hmm. so I went on the lot and I think the, um, I think it was like, it used to be, I know it was Lucille ball, but it used to be like her dressing room. It was like a whole like bungalow. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. that where which is now this producer's office. Yeah. And so I we go I go in there and I sit on this couch and there's sort of like a half circle of six or seven chairs of producers mm-hmm. sitting there like talking to me about and I I'm like I don't know what the hell I'm doing here like this is you know what I mean like this never happened what is going on right now and they were asking questions like along those lines like what I thought of you know and at one point they had brought up the um, possibility of like a dream sequence to show the creatures or, or what somebody would imagine them to look like. And I advised, it was my only time that I was sort of like, you know, advise anything. I was just like, I wouldn't even do go that far. Cause even if you show a dream, that image will be what the audience, the only image the audience has of the creature and it'll forever be what they think it is. So I think you should just leave it out of the movie entirely. Just never show that thing. And and that was that was it. And at the end of the meeting, I was um, so moved by what was going on that I like kind of cried. Like as I was leaving, I was kind of like, I just got to tell you, tell you guys, like I can't even believe this is happening right now. Like for Bird Box and for me, like thank you. And I started like crying on the way out the door, and they're like, "Oh man, no, it's okay." And I'm like, "No, no, no, it's alright." So I just kind of got overwhelmed for a second there, and then I left. And and it was an amazing, uh, it was amazing, dude. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just an emotional release. That's that's understand yeah yeah it really was it was you know i got the book deal when i was 36 i'm 45 now so i got it when i was like 36 mm-hmm. and the movie came out when i was what like th- well a couple 43 a couple years ago it came out or a year and a half or whatever is whatever it, you know what i mean mm-hmm. so if this had all happened maybe when i was 21 or i might be like oh this is how it always goes you know or something. <laughs> but by the time this all happened the book deal and coming out in the movie I was like fully aware of how amazing this is and like grateful beyond, beyond compare. So yeah, the whole thing's been like a sort of like a, a very warm experience for me. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I'm not, so this question isn't to ask whether you thought it was good or bad, but did their vision of, of bird box, did it mesh with what you thought or was it a different take that was, you know, a little different? I mean, definitely meshed. Um, I, in the book, it's less random how all the housemates end up together. It's more, um, it's like an ad that like-minded people um, respond to in the newspaper. Like the world is possibly shutting down right now. And if you're looking for philosophically minded people to come to this house and we'll talk of what to be done. And and so the people, there's more of a like, it's more of a uh, birds of a feather getting together in, in, um, in a bird box than, than sort of chaos and random people running to a home, like in the movie. So that would be like a difference relationship. There's no, um, nothing sexual or amorous between Mallory and Tom in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, but obviously they respect the hell out of each other in like dire circumstances. And so in the movie they, there is though, and, but I mean, like, okay, great. So what? So, so I definitely think it's, it's similar. And like I said, they never showed, they never showed the thing. And Mallory is the one who leads these children through. So to me, it's like, it's pretty damn close, man. Okay. Um, uh, however, the, my question, I, I should have stated it better, like mentally, like what you imagined, um, the visuals, like when you saw oh, the visual the, side, um, you know, hard did, to say that one, uh, I see what you're saying. Um, the visual side, well, I pictured it in a more sort of like um, uh, lesser used river in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And and when it was filmed, it's like this gorgeous like landscape in like Oregon, you know? 
with like mo- like so colorful and the water's so wide and blue and and that's awesome you know but the i saw it more as like a deliverance river <laughs> and and um yeah more like kind of like gnarly like trees on the sides and like dirt you know like muddy slopes and stuff like that you know but and mallory i also pictured her not her but let's say her outfit for a second less colorful also just like a white tank top jeans let's black blindfold let's go and her kids too um and in the movie it was more there's more of like a style she has like she has the color and style to her and so those kind of elements i was like whoa you know and and i've I've almost always before the movie at least i always kind of saw um the book is like a like a black and white episode like i was saying before like the twilight zone Mm -hmm. like it's to me the book is very cold straight shot and the movie has much more like color and vivacity to it than the book does Hmm, interesting so with that in mind so the stuff you've written well i guess there was some time between when it came out but um has sort of seeing it on screen changed the way you've you you wrote lighter projects or maybe the prospect of stuff being on screen did that change how you wrote no i don't think so i i think that i because bird box is present tense um, I think that there's some encouragement in that. I mean, the book's done really well for me and and I've written, well, I'm looking at a, my shelf, one, two, three that way now. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's some encouragement on that front that was like, maybe you do well in this, in this like narrative voice, things like that. But the, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that I've become or, or been more aware of being like cinematic or something like that. No, I don't think so. But also because I don't know if Bird Box is an idea that, let, let's say um, that that uh, some cinematic success happened before Bird Box for me. I don't think Bird Box is an idea I would have come up with thinking, oh, this would make a great movie, you see? So it seems like that would be almost like trying to hit a moving target to to try to consciously try like, what's another, you know, blockbuster idea I have? I think that that's like a dangerous path to, to tread. So, so no, I, I think it's been pretty much like the same over here. Okay. Okay. Is there anything, as far as your approach to writing, is there anything out of the ordinary that you think you do compared to other writers? Well, you know, one thing is that it's sort of like the rules are established with each project. So uh, Bird Box was written from each day from seven in the morning till like noon and every day in a row till it was done. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I, I'm trying to look up here, which one, uh, uh, another one was done, you know, like eight at night till midnight, but, and then it stays, stay in that pattern. Now you write eight to midnight every day till it's done. So that I think is maybe something that is a, a bit unique to me is that e- while there is a discipline and routine to each book, there are different from each other. And another thing I do is that I wink at the page. If I do something that I thought was good. <laughs> wink at it. Like, good job. I mean, like, yeah, that was good. Yeah. <laughs> the computer or do you write with the so i've done four or five freehand and i kind of want to do it again uh, i want to like i haven't done that one in a minute now um but all the rest i've written 33 books now all the rest were uh typed first computer well one was on a typewriter actually oh wow okay yeah that was uh that was an experience man and that wasn't that long ago i just wanted to see what it was like uh-huh. And wow, that was an experience to actually sit there and hear it. And, and, and it was a different, whole different feel to it. And you use the whiteout 
to correct mistakes? No. So what I did, I was, I, I had in a, uh, the means of just like the erasable, whatever, you know what I'm talking about, the ribbon, mm-hmm. but I, that busted. So eventually all I did was anytime there was a mistake, I would just like literally XXX through it, you know, like, like go back and like type through it and retype. But what that's made is like, I mean, my God, there must be a thousand of those in, in that rough draft, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I guess the one issue is you can't do a quick word search for something or, you know. Yeah, no, dude. And you can't like you also can't be distracted by, OK, so what's on the news or all right, let's, you know, ooh, I'm going to take a break. What's on Facebook? Like, no. And that was kind of wonderful about it is that literally this is all you got, man. You got nowhere else to go. And that was in a way that was that was a nice feeling. What can you say? What work that that you did on the typewriter? Yeah, it's called Dandy. And I eventually put out sort of a longer novella version of it um, in a collection uh, called Midnight Under the Midnight Under the Big Top with um, uh, Cemetery Dance, okay. and so it's a that's an anthology of short stories. But then my novella is like a hundred and how long is it? like a hundred and thirty pages is, is the end of that book. Mm-hmm. But Dandy started a bit longer than that. But like I said. And the rough draft was on it was a disaster. So I was like, I'm going to pare this down to a novella. Yeah. Okay. But what, uh, what form format do you, do you think you prefer, you know, short story, novella, novel? I think the novel is home, but I also feel like, you know, there's sort of like, um, you know, if I think about like the scariest story I ever hear the scariest stories I've, I've ever told are sort of like, um, very brief. Like, for example, let's say you and I are at a house party, right? Mm-hmm. And you go out on the front porch to get some air or something. And then some guy walks out there and he says, hey, you're into horror? And you're like, yeah. And he's like, dude, man, one time in my basement, uh, I saw my dead aunt peer around the furnace and, and like wink at me. And then and then she left. And I'd be like, wait, what did you say? And then he, oh, I'm going to go back inside. And he leaves. And you're just kind of left with this image of this dead aunt looking around this, peering around this furnace at him. And that story is maybe more chilling than any novel we could read because to sustain that little, Oh, what was that for 400 pages? That is a tall order. And even, even the greats, they, it's not really quite done like that. You know, there are lulls, there are down moments. There are, there are maybe there are funny moments, whatever. It's not like you just sustain that the whole time. Mm-hmm. So then the short story though, you would think, well, then that would be the most natural place for horror, right? To, to the smaller the better to keep this mood but with the short story we don't get enough time to get to know all these characters whatever right so in a sense sometimes i feel like the novella is the best home for horror you have enough room to to immerse yourself into this story to get to know these characters to live here but it's not long enough that it's impossible to maintain that underlying one note of dread so and bird box is a comparatively short novel it's like 68 thousand words and i think that that one i don't think there's not one joke in bird box you know and like i said it's a cold one man and and it's just like i think i was able to maintain it for that i don't i didn't try to maintain it for unburied carol but i think it would be hard to maintain like for like the duration of like a thousand you know thousand page novel or something that'd be really hard so the novella to me makes like a lot of sense for like a horror writer do you ever um have you written stuff that you maybe you wrote too much or, and actually in bird box, did, did you ever find yourself writing maybe something that was too lighthearted for you? And you were like, wait, wait, what am I doing? Yeah. But then I, so yes, but then I worry like 
my favorites do that. You know what I mean? Stephen King has shit like that. And, and like Hitchcock had moments like that. And, mm-hmm. and definitely Spielberg, obviously. And even Rod Serling has stuff like that. And so I'll be like, like, is it okay to leave this? Like, I don't know. Like it, it becomes almost like an identity crisis. Yeah. <laughs> and I know exactly what you mean. And those moments, I think it depends on what else you have already. If you have some like holy moly moments in the book, mm-hmm. yeah, let's leave what you're saying. It, you know, there's room for it possibly. But if you don't, you might want to, you might want to excise that. I don't know. I don't know. It, 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 it's, it's a bit of a, it's a good question that I run into often. Hmm. So we've talked a little bit about sort of your approach to writing. And um, so from the very beginning to now, would you say there's anything significant that's changed in how you write? Well, I'll tell you what, I, I have a friend who um, we sort of like, pose challenges to each other. We got to write this many short stories in this many months. We got to mm. uh, write three novels in three months, like crazy stuff that we do. <laughs> and I think in the course of this pandemic, in the course of this lockdown, I think we got better, James and I. And and, and, and the, the reason I feel comfortable saying this is that like, number one, I think a writer and an artist should be able to say, hey, I think I got better. Like I've been doing this every day. And you know, I don't think any of us deserve fame, you know, money, these kind of things, but what do you, what do you deserve to get better if you work on it every day? And I feel like I saw it happen with James and I, like James is sending me stuff and I'm like, dude, this is better now. And I'm sending him stuff now that doesn't take as much of a rewrite. Like the original, the, um, uh, the the rough drafts are better, put it that way. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think that, you know, if you look at it kind of like music, um, the, the, there's many quantum leaps early on, right? Now I know how to play a G and a D. Now I can play bar chords. Now I can sing and play at the same time. And this all kind of happens in the first year. These are quantum leaps in the first year of playing the guitar. Then it kind of becomes like, well, now I'm, this is the level I'm at unless you're working regularly. Now I can do this. Now I can palm mute. Now I can like run in this scale. Now I can play this without looking. Like now, you know, and the same thing with writing. I think in the beginning, there's a sense of like, okay, now I know how to do this. Now I do this. Time passes. The the length of time between those developments is longer, but they still happen. And I think that that happened for me and for James here in this. So I know your question was a little bit different than that, but, but it is something that I've like noticed from 33 books deep now is that the rough drafts are getting like better on their own and requiring less, less of a rewrite. No, I think you you t- you completely hit hit the question on the head. All right, all right, that's good. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, do you, do you do you um outline or do you plot it out your your work before you do it, or you? No, well, no. There was one. It's it's more like um having a few landmark scenes, like in Bird Box. I had um the birth scene. I had um a couple other scenes, and I knew. I had to just get from A to B to C to D. I knew that. Okay, how are we going to get there? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But the irony, of course, is that like a reader's favorite scenes are, are rarely the landmark scenes. It'll be like a conversation between two characters in the cellar. It'll be like a, a moment, some, something that happened outside that you just added. Maybe even at, maybe even at the buzzer you added it. Mm-hmm. And, and so there was one, though. I think it was... The long one I had, it was more mapped out than this. It was more like scene by scene mm-hmm. because I wrote, there's one book I wrote that's like a 1100 pages 
Mm-hmm. And I understood that to maintain that and to pull, to land that plane, mm-hmm. I needed like a skeleton. I needed a structure. And also almost counterintuitively, I wrote less per day than I normally would for fear of running out of gas. Because mm-hmm. if I could write, let's just say if I could write um, 3000 a day normally, right? So in a couple months, you'd have a book or let's say a few months, you'd have a book done, but then you'd also be spent. You just wrote a whole novel, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're, if you're eyeing like a book that's over three times that length, mm-hmm. your instinct is like a non-writer might be, well, now you should write 6,000 a day. No, 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 no. You're, <laughs> you're not going to make it to the end of that thing. So I did like a thousand a day instead. And it was almost like an act in like patience, right? And, and like some sort of Zen because you would make it a thousand words. You'd be like, I just like if you're a runner, I only ran one mile, but I can run two more. I swear. No, no, no. Sh- don't right. write it tomorrow instead. And it got me through. I, it took me about a year to do it. Yeah. Huh. So, so you mentioned, uh, so we've talked about your work as a musician. Is there any other work you did that's influenced how or what you write? Well, no, but I, I want to, um, I absolutely, I have an idea uh, and want to direct a movie. It's hard to call it a horror movie. It's more, um, do you ever see Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? No, I've heard of it. Um, okay. Or, or or I'm trying to think movie. You know, Cassavetes, you know him? The, yes. You know, like sort of more the conversations between occult-minded people mm-hmm. and, and to be filmed in like black and white, but maybe in a frightening scenario that, yes, but but more, it's more important that you're like, with these um, people that are fascinated by the cult or write about it or do creature effect or this. And I don't mean a documentary. I mean like characters in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think, so maybe it would be like some sort of, maybe this, the, it would happen at a convention, for example. Right. And you have all these like-minded characters. I would, because I feel like for me to set out in a horror movie to try to out scare the conjuring or out scare the witch, well, that's silly. But if I set out to do, sort of more like how I see this in this sort of more philosophical, intellectual, but in a fun way, I think I could do something really like, really interesting there. So I want to try that. I, I want to try to direct a movie like that, like as soon as possible. Yeah, I think I noticed that you did, did you do a sort of a secret, it was on the net, it's described as sort of a secret film project or? Yeah, well, that's as a producer though. So me and um, my manager of 12 years now, we, after Bird Box, he, he's a producer on Bird Box. But after that one, we were like, okay, we had no leverage here. But for now on, let's be producers on everything we do. And this has led to Ryan and I starting a uh, production company called Spin a Black Yarn. And we we are just produced our first movie I made uh, during the pandemic in October. Um, only three miles from where I'm sitting right now, which is bizarre, in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was... Uh, uh, like a landmark moment for us because we've been shopping stuff and shopping my own stuff and, and to, to a lot of success. A lot of stuff's been optioned, scripts are being written, all this. Mm-hmm. But this is our first movie that was actually made to completion and now is premiering at the Tribeca Film Festival in, in June. So mm-hmm. it's a big moment for us. We're pretty, we're, pretty, we're pretty jazzed about it. Yeah, yeah. And what's the title of that? So, that, oh, that's see, big secret. It's called We Need to Do Something. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I've read some of the description of it. It seems it's fascinating. The idea, the concept, it, I don't know if you want to mention it, but the concept is really interesting. Like, I'm really curious how you, you handled it. 
Yeah, it, it's a, a family that's stuck in a bathroom for the duration of an entire for the entire entire movie, mm-hmm. uh, as like a tornado warning, and then a you know a tornado outside keeps them there. So yeah, yeah that's uh, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Years ago, my 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 we had a family friend who was in a what was it Hurricane Andrew in Miami, and they went in their bathroom in their home, and when the hurricane passed, they came out the the whole house was blown down except their bathroom. What really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, horrifying. Yeah. yeah. It was all this cheap house, new cheap housing that had been thrown up in Miami and it all blew down in the hurricane, unfortunately. Wow. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, your, your movie made me think of that immediately as soon as I saw the description. Yeah. And we're going to go to New York for the premiere and everything. It's like, yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty amazing, man. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm almost not even like sure what to make of this yet. Cause this is all new to him and I, to Ryan and I, the producer side. So this is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, so this is a whimsical question. I'll use that word again. Was they, was there a power technology or fictional setting that when you were young, you wanted to either own or have or be a part of or live in maybe, you know, when I was really young, I was, I had, um, Grayskull, the castle and everything. I had I had the awesome like it folds open, you know, on the hinges, that one. Yeah. Um, but but soon after that, like it, I keep referencing it, but it's true. Like, I don't think anybody rightfully should live in the Twilight Zone, but I sure I wanted to visit it. Yeah. I wanted to accidentally step into it. And I know that's a bad thing to wish for, but <laughs> but I but I but I did. I wanted I just wanted I wanted to be there. I wanted to see, even if I was just an extra and watch somebody else's troubled story unfold I, I just wanted to be in that ripple or something yeah okay so so goblin what would what what are the cemeteries like in goblin the all the all the dead are buried standing up and 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 one of them uh one character i won't tell you too much uh gives us a close look at that i'll just say that much <laughs> wow yeah that's uh oh Okay, that's creepy. You get, I feel like I've gotten goosebumps every now and then during this conversation, some of the stuff you mentioned. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so did you have, so with Goblin, did you have any difficulties getting it um, published or, or put out? Or was it a pretty smooth process? No, no, yeah. The, I mean, again, with Bird Box being the first book um, mm-hmm. that came out, not that it was like a, a mega hit when it came out or something at first, mm-hmm. but it open the door to, to all the other ones that have followed so far, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was actually somewhat interesting because the author, Christopher Golden called me and he was like, Hey, I see that you have um, a number of books and one way that you might be able to get more of them out is to release limited editions of some of them. Mm-hmm. So that's what Goblin being released that way originally was a result of this guy, Christopher Golden putting me in touch with the um, publisher Earthling Publications and this guy named Paul Miller, who's like, I would love to do a limited edition. Paul and I are doing another book now. But the point is that that advice from Christopher was was brilliant because you don't have to look at it like you need all your books out and, and, and all at once and all through the same, like through Del Rey and Penguin. Don't look at it that way. Look at it. And, and, and in my career so far, it has gone big five indie, big five indie, big five, literally every other one, 10 books deep now. And I don't think I would have thought to do that or take that road if it wasn't for Christopher giving me that call. And, and he kind of opened that door for me and said, there are more ways than one to, to put a book out. So no, putting it out was great. And then Del Rey saying, um, 
they took all three of the limited edition releases that I had and are giving now giving them wide releases. Okay. Okay. Do, do you ever get any pressure from any corner to write to a certain trend? You know, like someone saying, Hey, in a year or so, this is going to be big. You know, why don't you yes. write? Yeah, I do. And I, 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 cause I don't want to like throw anyone under the bus. I won't name names or anything, but, but I ha I did receive sort of like, Hey, I could, I could send you this sort of, you know, it was almost like, monthly like trend kind of thing and i was like yeah i don't i don't want that email ever i don't i don't want that man not to sound like some badass do-it-yourself punk or something but i just i to me that's like a dangerous dangerous thing to have in the room with you like and then and then you and everyone else are all putting out like families in danger books you know all the same book or something you know and which i get it it's also fun in a way right it's like some some of that's a bit of a challenge like well what would i come up with for that but I just, to me, it's like, let's keep the, if there's one thing we got to keep here around here, it's like the idea. Well, Mm -hmm. let's make sure this stuff's coming from like a joyous inspired, like, Oh, Oh, this is good place rather than like, well, I'm told that killers are in. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So on the flip side, have you ever started writing something and said, Oh wait, this is everyone starting to do this. I I don't want to do it as well." well. I have, I have a weird example. I, um, I have a book that I wrote in what year was that? 2000. I want to know this. Hold on. 2009 called a woman, a woman, a window. Mm-hmm. And it's about two women that go to stay at a bed and breakfast. And every book after gone girl is the girl in the train, the girl underwater, the girl in the, 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 the you know, the woman, the there's a book called the woman in the window. The, I mean, I mean, literally there was a time where I went to target and I counted and it was, I think it was half of them. Half the books were, you know, the husband, the wife, the wife, the husband, the woman, the girl, you know, that kind of thing. And so that every time I think of a woman, a woman, a window, I'm like, when that comes out, I'm probably gonna have to change that title, man. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I'm not just copying the trend. I'm not. But then there's another side of me that says like, hey, if you wrote it from a real place, don't worry about it. Like if it came, if that, you know, you did it in 09, just put it out, man. But I don't know. I, I just feel like that would be just like asking for problems. Hmm. Yeah. Do you think you, do you write for yourself or do you write for your fans? I, I think that the problem with saying that you write for yourself is that it sounds like you don't. Or do you write for a small group? You know, like this, this, you know, your, your beta group, maybe I could call it. No, I, I think, I guess if I had to just, if I had to decide, I guess, um, in a non-selfish way for myself, I want to thrill myself. I want to scare myself. I want to turn myself on with this, whatever, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But that, of course, that I know, and you're not asking in a selfish or you're not saying, are you selfish or are you not? That's not what the question is. (laughs) Right. But, but then also to say the opposite, I write for the fans. Then that also sounds like maybe you're just writing trends. So both directions are a little dangerous for me. I, I think if, you know, gun to my head, I would say, yeah, I guess it's for myself. Yeah. I, I, for the joy of it, the fun of it, the thrill of it, but like with an audience in mind, absolutely. And wanting and hoping that an audience like that, I freak somebody out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, what, uh, what, what other current projects are you working on that you'd like to mention that you haven't? Well, the band has an album coming out in October called Hannah. Um, I, there is another limited edition from Del Rey, like that's now going wide with Del Rey called Pearl in October, mm-hmm. but Goblin and Goblin is center stage right now. So yeah, that's, 
that's it. I'm working on, you know, working on the next book for like next year and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, Goblin is gloriously center stage. And I can't, I honestly can't wait for this one to come out, man. It's hardcover. Um, the new artwork's great. My, I, th- I think I told you that Allison did the original artwork, my fiance. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I believe you did. Yeah, I have it. I mean, just so you can see real fast, it's right here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's totally awesome. She did all the, and um, I just, I could not be happier that this is coming out like it right now when it is. Did did, did uh, the the COVID situation inspire any any storylines that you're working on or you might work on? No, I think that you know, Mallory, the the follow up to Bird Box, Mallory was so the whole book is her being like hyper pro mask, right? She's pro blindfold, right? Mm-hmm. I wrote it obviously before COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came out during it. Um, and it was so bizarre to have to have to be putting out this like essentially a book that you know, fit in any way with what was going on in the world felt insane, even though obviously it's fiction and that's real and you know understand. Right. But I I, I don't I think my instinct would tell me like hey, I'm gonna stay away from any illness, sickness, plague, um, pandemic, anything like that. Not that I probably would have leaned that way anyway, but I, I think that even if it, or even you could even say, um, uh, what's the word? Like I would be hesitant to write a book that's too on the nose about politics right now, too on the nose about um, a lot of things right now. At the same time, there's a balance because like you don't want to ignore like the age you live in. You don't want to ignore the moment that we're having, right? Mm-hmm. But my instinct tells me, Again, keep that idea well, Pierre, the water in that well, Pierre. Whatever is in there that thrills you, if it is a pandemic story, if it is the president sucks story, then then go ahead and write it. Mm-hmm. But let's try to keep that like as pure as possible. And let's like just be let's whatever we choose to write is because it's thrilling the hell out of me versus um uh, a sense to tell like a um a social statement, to make a social statement. Okay. Okay. Um, what, where can people find you online? Um, social media website. Yeah. So it's just my name, Josh Mallerman everywhere, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and my website used to be boring. It's not anymore because during the pandemic, I wrote, um, I serialized a novel on the website and it's the only place it is. It's not an ebook anywhere. It's not, um, on Amazon. You can't buy it. It's not a hard copy. Literally the only place that this, novel exists as a full book longer than bird box even is on joshmallerman.com and you'll see them all the chapters lined up and a guy named chris campbell did um um the sound did a soundtrack for it and that's also linked to there so it's a truly mm-hmm. awesome that website is now fun you could go read an entire novel that there's no reviews there there's no stars there i mean it's just there's a novel just sitting there for free and just anyone can go read it but it also has this guy's awesome awesome soundtrack Oh, awesome. Okay. And I'll spell your name just for anyone who's been in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> um, Josh, and then uh, M-A-L-E-R-M-A-N. Uh, Josh Mallerman, and that's, yeah, and all those. Um, I guess I'm the only Josh Mallerman because that's all I am at all those places, yeah. Dot yeah. And dot yeah. com? Well, the website is joshmallerman.com, yeah, but in, but in everyone else too, yeah, so. And, and what's by the way, what, those two the two heads behind you? What what are they? I've been noticing them. So this one to my right is the um, 
uh, American Wolf in London uh, when um, he's like deteriorating, like you need to kill yourself, David, in like the theater. And here, let me, he looks a little flattened right now. His face is actually thinner. You see now uh, that looks more like him to you. Yeah. Um, this is a good one, right? Look at yeah, that hair. Yeah. Wow. This one actually looks incredible right now. Yeah. That's um, and then the other one, are you also from American Werewolf? I think. Okay. I can't remember where this one is from, but I think he might also be from American Werewolf. I think there's another like scene where this guy's in it for a second, like a nightmare. So I just can't remember exactly where this guy's from. If for someone sensitive to that sort of thing, is it safe for you to to have those in the, at night or the, in the oh, dark? Oh, there's all there's like twenty of them over there on the other side of the of the computer. <laughs> okay, okay. Is is your fiance? Is she a big horror fan too? Then. Well, she's like a she's just a fan of like uh, everything. She's a classical guitarist. She's an amazing singer. She paints. She's a marathon runner. She does special effects like she can do and has done um, uh, latex and like creature effects and this kind of stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. We do often we do like theatrical readings um, uh, of the books as the books are released. And Allison does like masks for like literal latex masks to wear as the characters um, a suit that would be like more like the character's body than your own um, setting stuff like that. So Allison's like, like a mega artist who, yeah, she likes scary stuff, but she doesn't, you know, she's not like uh, on like a horror diet. She's all, she's all over the place and she reads a ton of fantasy, like a ton of fantasy. Okay. She, she is more well-read in fantasy than I am in horror. Okay. Okay. I see. Um, all right. Uh, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any parting thoughts or words? I mean, just that I'm so glad this book's coming out and that I'm grateful that you had me, man. I, I really, that, I mean, that's just, you know, it, it, it means, like I said, all of this exciting stuff has happened rather than at age 20. It all kind of started in the mid, my mid thirties. So Chris, like this is, it's like a dream come true being asked to, or you doing this and, and talking to you about books, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, well, I, it's, you deserve your success. You've been working hard at it. And, and so thank you. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. Right on. <laughs> In the next episode, I speak with Anthony Leoy about his book on nerd ecologies. Hit the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to full contact nerd interviews. If you want more interviews with writers and creative people, or to get daily fiction suggestions including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube and Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and this podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez Warscholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyinspace.com. And follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon. Keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.